But first, this has been consuming a lot of people sharing images, videos on social media of the partying and the crowds that were seen in downtown Vancouver this weekend. Just a tiny bit of what was captured. Let's bring in Don Falkner, the operator of the Hotel Belmont Bar. Don, great to have you back on the show. Hi, Jill. How are you doing today? Uh, Very well. How about you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. Uh, So last time we talked to you, it was because a limo bus had pulled up to your establishment and you were quick to put the brakes on huge crowds coming into the Hotel Belmont Bar. What did you see and experience on Saturday? Um... I mean, Saturday night was, I think that we probably were very similar to most of the businesses on Granville Street. We've had 95% of our restaurant was booked up with reservations um, before 8 p.m. that night. And once the crowds really started coming, we didn't really see the street getting that busy that you saw in all the, the videos that were posted until 9, 9.30 p.m. And the peak of that street party was 11, 11.30 once all of the, you know, uh, over an hour after all of the businesses had stopped selling alcohol and closed down for the night. Uh, so did, is it your impression then that people that people didn't come only to party on that street? That was people who left the establishments? I think the majority of it was people who came to expecting to party on the street, found out that the bars and restaurants along the Granville Entertainment Strip were all already full and there wasn't really anywhere for them to go. So they just started roving the streets. Was anything done as far as, I'm sure you and others were anticipating that something like this would happen. Was anything done to try and stop it beforehand? For us, it was really about booking as many reservations in advance as we can, as we could. Um, we didn't want to get into a situation where we had a lineup outside, where we had uh, where we had to worry about, you know, trying to manage the business outside of our building as well as the business inside of our building. So we focused on creating a a safe place, a regulated environment for people to come and enjoy themselves on Halloween night. And it uh, it was just unfortunate to see how many people decided not to plan ahead. So for the evening itself inside your establishment where you took reservations and followed the rules, were there any issues on the inside? I think there was definitely some people who were trying to have a little bit more fun than what's allowed right now. Um, but we, you know, we had we had lots of staff and management on. We brought in uh, private security for the night as well to help us manage any issues that that did happen. Um, but the it was it was two different worlds being inside any of the businesses on Granville Street and then seeing what was going on outside. We didn't have anywhere anywhere near the problems that they had outside. We talk a lot about things like this happening and the concerns and the possibility of more restrictions. Do you think if there wasn't the restriction of alcohol sales stopping at 10 p.m., would that have led to people being able to stay indoors longer and perhaps been safer, or might that have just pushed the outdoor party later into the night? It's really tough to say. I think that, the, that there is definitely a balance um, between giving people a, a safe and regulated place to congregate um, while also trying to limit the case number increase that, that we are seeing right now. I mean, that's a, that's a very real thing that we see the case numbers going up. Adrian Dix has already told us that we're going to see shocking numbers today. Um, 
However, on, in a situation like Halloween, might it have been better for them to do a one-day uh, increase to the 10 p.m. and make it 11 p.m. or midnight and give people a place to stay? Or would that have just driven the, the street party to later on in the evening? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to look at, but I'm, I'm a huge proponent of the fact that we, as an industry in hospitality, have, have spent lots of money and lots of time and lots of training creating a safe and regulated environment for people to still be able to go out and enjoy food and enjoy drinks and have a good safe night. And, uh, and I think that that's something that they do need to look at. And as a, as a bar owner, a restaurant, a, a business owner, when you were looking out, when you saw the, the crowds on the streets, because we know sometimes, I mean, there is a ton of video and pictures that have surfaced on social media. Unless you're there looking at it, it's sometimes difficult to get perspective and to see exactly what's happening. Did you get the sense that people were crowding together and not really paying any attention to the rules or, or the issues with why we're not supposed to be doing that? Yeah, absolutely. It was like, I, I mean, it was very disappointing to see because there was absolutely no regard for uh, for their own safety or for anybody else's safety. I mean, we're, we really want to focus on keeping our staff and our guests safe within our business as much as we can. And when we see things like that happening, all that's going to do is make it even tougher for the businesses that are that are struggling. I mean, everybody in hospitality is struggling right now, and when you see things like that, it's gonna all it's gonna do is make more people stay home and not believe that there are safe and regulated environments to go to. So it, it just ends up hurting everybody. Did you get the sense that the crowd came in? As far as were there party buses? Were there people arriving? Or do we know kind of where the crowd came from? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't really see any of that. I mean, uh, but I, again, I was inside most of the night managing managing the business. It wasn't really until eleven o'clock, eleven thirty, when we had shut down for the night, and I was getting ready to go home that I went outside and was just blown away at what I saw. As a bar operator, are you concerned that we could see more regulations or, or reverting back to where we were a few months ago because of this? Yes, absolutely. That's it's the it's the biggest fear that all of us have right now. Um, is that, uh, you know, a, a, a further shutdown would be devastating to the hospitality industry, uh, which has already been, you know, um, hit very, very hard over the past six months. Um, but you're seeing it right now that um, dine-in service has been suspended in Toronto, in Montreal, in Winnipeg now today, um, and in all of these other major cities in Canada. So we're, we're looking at it as a, a very real possibility here and the actions it's what's frustrating and disappointing about it is it's not the actions of the business operators that are going to contribute to it because the business operators themselves are really working hard to follow the regulations to or you know 95 percent of the business operators let's say are working very hard to follow the regulations that have been put in place by the provincial health officer by WorkSafe bc um, and it's the actions of the consumers that are going to contribute to a further shutdown. All right. And, and I would imagine, too, this is the time of year when you and other business operators are looking again, like you said, you've invested so much money in having these protocols in place so people could perhaps have safe small Christmas gatherings or New Year's Eve. And I know a lot of people are concerned if we saw this for Halloween, what do we see at these big events coming up? 
And that's the that's really the, the next big one is going to be New Year's Eve. And I hope that the that the, the city and, uh, you know, the Vancouver police said today they responded to over 800 calls in the 24 hour period of Saturday. And they've got, you know, they've got much better things to do than to tell people not to stand around in groups of more than six people. But um, I really think that the that there has to be planning put in place right now to figure out what New Year's Eve is going to look like. Otherwise, we're just going to see more videos trending on social media of people not following the rules and um and that takes us right into 2021 where we don't want to continue with all of this all right well don thank you so much for uh, agreeing to chat with us today uh, we're going to talk more about this on the program but thank you so much for your time absolutely thanks for having me Have- We were just uh, talking about the crowds that gathered on the Granville Strip in Vancouver on Saturday night. The release sent out from Vancouver police goes through various criminal incidents, uh, not just on Granville Street, uh, but in other parts of the city as well. In one case, a woman being struck over the head with a blunt instrument. Uh, There was a stabbing three minutes after that. Uh, There was also the case of people, this was on the Granville Strip, uh, people driving along Granville Street in a white Range Rover sitting on the sides of the windows and when officers told the vehicle to stop some of the passengers got out and according to the VPD uh, the officer was then swarmed by the people in the vehicle. Uh, Many people have been wondering why tickets weren't issued and police put out this response saying that because of the hostile demeanor and size of the crowd on Saturday distancing tickets were not issued as it would not have been a safe or efficient use of available police resources. So that's the police response. But we also heard from Vancouver Fire, 295 calls, 38 fires, and about $450,000 in damage, all recorded on Halloween night. Uh, Let's bring in Jonathan Gormick. He's a captain with the Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services. He's the public information officer. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Is that... I hate to use the word normal, but is that the kind of call level Vancouver firefighters are used to on a Halloween night? Uh, That represents one of our busier Halloweens, that's for sure. Um, Halloween is always a busy night for us and our partner agencies. Sometimes it's a little bit slower if it's on a weekday or typically if it's raining. uh, That can really slow things down. But uh, being dry and being on a Saturday, we kind of knew what to expect for this Saturday. But uh, I don't think anybody expected it to be this busy, especially with COVID restrictions. Uh, Because I think that's what people were were thinking about going into it. Even though it was a Saturday and it was a clear night, a full moon, uh, that uh, with people being hesitant about going out and being told please don't have parties that kind of thing uh, that maybe we wouldn't have this busy of a night Uh, what were some of the bigger cases or more troubling fires uh, that your crews were called to well, it was just busy all around. It's disappointing to see the amount of property damage, whether it's uh, you know large structures or um, smaller outbuildings, garages, hedges, and things like that. Those still cost homeowners a considerable amount of money or property owners a considerable amount of money. They, we did have one significant structure fire at, uh, that evening, and it's still under investigation, so I can't directly tie it to fireworks. Um, but there was the, the loss of a significantly expensive vehicle as well, and I think that's going to be directly tied to fireworks. So uh, it's just year after year, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars needlessly lost for property owners. Uh, when you talk about the loss of the, uh, the vehicle, so what happened there? Um, it's still under investigation, but it appears as though a, a firework was set off maliciously with it inside a parked vehicle. And somebody just somebody randomly chose a vehicle? 
Um, you know, I can't speak to the intent or who might be under investigation. Obviously, we're working with VPD on this file. Sure. Um, not sure if it was targeted because they knew the owner, but uh, it was a parked vehicle and uh, uh, it was going to be a complete loss. And the structural damage, the structure fire, I, I know you said that's under investigation as well, but is, that, is the, the investigation to see if that was also firework related? I think investigators, again, working with VPD, will uh, try to determine whether it was malicious or accidental and what the cause was. So I'm hesitant to uh, to speak on it right now, but um, it just, it's another load, you know, it's, it's if it was not tied to fireworks, that kind of represents our typical volume, call volume. So to have to deal with all these nuisance fires on top of that just taxes crews unnecessarily. And with COVID as well, is it more difficult for fire crews in that when you show up and a vehicle's on fire or a hedge or a shed is on fire, you, you have to also still take protocols and take, take safety measures? You know, by this point in the pandemic, I think our crews have the safety measures and the safety steps well-established and well-practiced, and, and that hasn't been an issue for us, and it's probably reflected by the fact that we've had no staff um, become infected while at work. Um, it, it usually, the, the highest risk is, of course, when we're attending medical calls, and that's part of Halloween as well, but uh, our staff are well-protected and are rigorous with their safety procedures, and that's what managed to keep us uh, safe since March. Uh, were there reports or we I heard people anecdotally talking about fire lanterns or seeing things flying through the air that appeared to be fire lanterns that were then landing and possibly landing on people's property is is that something that you guys uh, that that crews attended I haven't heard any reports of that. I mean, nothing would really surprise me at this point. I do remember we had an issue with that some years ago, but I think the city uh, prohibited those. I can't remember. They're like a paper floating lantern that's lifted by the hot air of a candle. Mm -hmm. Uh, But those were prohibited years ago for, for exactly that reason. All right. Well, it doesn't doesn't sound like a recipe for success, really, uh, the paper and fire and sending it off into the air. Um, Yeah, drifting uh, randomly. Yeah. Uh, People are talking about just the sheer number of fireworks and the noises and the bangs and that they went well into the night or sorry, their early morning hours. Uh, Do you think, do we know if there were more this year? I know it was the last year that they were legal. Did it seem like people were getting in one last hurrah for fireworks? I'm not sure. We, we'd have to look at the sales numbers to determine if more fireworks were bought or more people bought fireworks this year. Um, hopefully it wasn't a reason to go out and splurge and, and uh, buy more. But uh, I think just the, the amount of damage we've seen year after year and the inevitable injuries we've seen year after year are why the city's moved with a, a ban. Um, you know, from the fire department's perspective, we can't permit and regulate something that we know is going to cause damage and we know is going to cause injuries and really has no tangible positive effect there's uh yeah it's it's for fun and entertainment only we know it's going to lead to significant poverty damage we know it's going to lead to injuries um we've tried the permitting system for about 13 years and we did see a reduction in those two but the reduction hasn't been significant enough so in order to protect people's property and protect people from getting injured, injured, we do have to move forward with the ban. How confident are you that the ban will make a difference? I think it'll make a significant difference. Um, you know, part of the, the permitting system was certainly not to restrict people's access to fireworks. It was actually to uh, to lower the barriers to getting safe legal fireworks that had been certified for use in Canada. So I don't think the permit was any kind of impediment for people who wanted to get them. Um, I will have to wait to see till next year. And I realize that there will still be underground sales. I think anyone that thinks that that's not going to happen is naive, but I don't think it'll be nearly as significant as the legal sales. Uh, I'd be very surprised if the number of people that wanted to buy or went and got a permit and bought legal fires would then turn to finding um, 
uh, clandestine or an illegal source to buy fireworks for that evening. I think just the, the hassle of the fact that they could be facing fines of up to $1,000 would be uh, enough of a deterrent not to go that route. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, Jonathan Gormick, thanks so much for taking some time uh, to talk with us. No problem. Thanks for having us. Well, as we continue watching what is happening with COVID-19, we know that it is very unlikely the border between Canada and the United States will reopen at any point soon. But we did hear on Friday that the rules were going to be relaxed for some border towns in B.C., in New Brunswick, and some special exemptions were going to be put in place. However, those exemptions do not apply to Point Roberts, and many of the residents of Point Roberts are frustrated by this. Early Earlier on the program, we heard from, oh, sorry, not on this program, earlier on the, the uh, mornings with Simi, we heard from Brian Calder. He is with the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce, uh, very upset that Point Roberts didn't get the exemption. Uh, I'm outraged about it. I, I'm happy for the other exclaves across Canada, and we're the only one left, and, or should I say left out. All the others are, are, are accommodated. And I think when the border locked down in our province, they locked their minds down in the government at the same time. He also said many of the people, again, who live there feel like they have been completely forgotten. They're not looking at us at all. Nobody has been here from either government. They don't care. And that's disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. So no help from the Washington state side of things? Nothing. They put in this stupid ferry. That doesn't solve a damn thing. It does not solve a thing. It's like the love boat. You go, and if it's a nice day, you go for a free ride on the backs of the taxpayers. That's ludicrous. Let's bring in Len Saunders. He's an immigration lawyer. He's based in Blaine, Washington. Len, thanks so much for coming back on the show. No problem. How are you, Jill? Very well. How about you? Not too bad. Uh, We've talked about the situation in Point Roberts before. Uh, How do you respond to what you just heard from uh, from Brian Calder with the the, uh, Chamber of Commerce? Well, I know Brian very well. I actually spoke to him earlier last week, and I know he was really hopeful that there would be some exemption for Point Roberts. So I can see his frustration. And what's crazy is most of these people who live in the Point are Canadians. They're dual citizens. They have maybe a work permit or they have green cards. And so it's crazy that the Canadian government hasn't made some similar exception for the point. And I hear that it's getting worse and worse over there. There's hardly anybody who's left there. Everyone's had to leave for necessities. Which is, I suppose, if you can do that, then that works out. It's still not the perfect solution. Uh, but do you think they have more ground now to make this argument or to really push for this, seeing as as of Friday, we've seen the rules relax at some other border towns? Oh, absolutely. I don't think there's any reason why Point Roberts was not put into the, these exemptions. There's no reason why there couldn't be some sort of you know way for for these residents to at least drive over, like even for one of those residents to come and see me to be allowed to come over for legal services. I have to draft a letter explaining to CBSA that they're coming over for essential services because I'm considered essential, but not everybody has that ability, you know, to come over here and maybe shop while they're here for a quick trip. Cause I think the shopping over there, 
I've been told it's like shopping for groceries at 7-Eleven. There's nothing over there these days. Uh, so with these other border towns getting the exemptions, is it that, that it's different in that Point Roberts is cut off by there is no direct road to another place in the United States, that they do have to come through Canada? Or, or why is it, do you think, or what could possibly, possibly be the rationale to not include it on this list? I don't think there is from these other areas, which I'm aware of. They, they seem to be in a similar situation where they're landlocked or waterlocked, and you know the only practical way out is driving into Canada. So I have no idea why Point Roberts wasn't included, because I think there's four or five other communities that have been granted these exemptions, and for some reason, Point Roberts has been left out. And so people that live in these other communities now, they can enter, from what I understand, they can then now go to the nearest Canadian or American community and do things like grocery shop, have medical appointments, and they don't have to quarantine when they come back. And from what I'm hearing from people that are in Point Roberts, they're, they're saying that as well. We have no intention of, of stopping, uh, going out, uh, having a, like a, a day out. They just want to be able to do uh, these types of things. Is it because you can't guarantee that somebody would do that? Well, I guess that's the argument, but it's only a 10 or 15 minute drive if you loop around from Tawasson over to South Surrey. And it's quite easy for border officers to have someone check in. And these are not people who want to go grocery shopping or do social visits in Canada. They want to come to where I am, the other part of Whatcom County go grocery shopping, get gas, do whatever, and they aren't being, you know, given that ability. And I agree with Brian, you know, taking this ferry, it's not a very good option, especially if you have, you know, lots of groceries or lots of errands to do, especially when you get to this side, there's no transportation unless you take a bus, and that's very difficult in Whatcom County. Well, and it also seems like that would be more dangerous if the whole point is to stop the spread of a potential virus, which, again, there have been no confirmed cases that I know of in Point Roberts. But wouldn't it be safer for somebody to stay in their vehicle, go from point A to point B and back home? Oh, absolutely. All that you have to do is, you know, be able to loop around in Delta and so Surrey and check in. You know, you'll need to stop unless you're stopping at a traffic light along the way. And it it seems like the smart thing to do to allow these individuals to come to the other side of Whatcom County. And especially with this border closure, you know, from what I've seen, it seems like this closure is not going to stop anytime soon. And so there's going to be no one left in Port Roberts uh, at the end of this pandemic. And the fact that even though the border is closed, we are still having essential workers cross the border. Uh, That's been happening throughout the closure. I mean, you would think if there was a potential for spreading the virus or or that's where the danger is, it would be from somebody who is working the front lines and crossing the border, not again from somebody who's been in this tiny little community the whole time. Absolutely. I see lots of Canadians and Americans crossing back and forth for essential services And it doesn't seem like they're spreading the virus any more than someone in Point Roberts would. And I know Brian told me they are having regular coronavirus tests over on the point. So people are being regularly tested. And to this day, eight months later, after the pandemic started, they still have not had one positive case from as far as I know.
So is there anything that they can do legally as far as I know, uh, Brian Calder, again, uh, has has written to the government who has, has reached out wanting to get a better explanation or to get at least some attention paid uh, to Point Roberts. Is there anything from a legal point of view you think they can do? Well, I don't think anyone has the right uh, to come up and not quarantine. So, you know, I'm a great example. I can come north anytime I want to. But I'm not essential, so I'd have to quarantine. And so you're allowed in, but you have to quarantine. So, you know, for them legally, yes, they have many of these people in Point Roberts have the legal right to enter Canada, but they just don't want to have to do the quarantine. I think their best bet is just to get the whole message out, just like Brian has, telling people that the Point should have some sort of exemption and at least getting some sympathy so that at some point maybe the politicians will wake up and listen to all of this outcry in the point and allow these residents to enter Canada for essential purposes. At, at normal capacity, I think Point Roberts is something like 300 or sorry, 1,300 full-time residents. Uh, are you getting a sense from talking with Brian and talking from people there, how many people are there now? Oh, I, I would guess easily half of the residents have, have left. A lot of them are young families with kids. They've all left because the kids, there's no schooling there. So I would say at least half of those residents. And the problem is there's another three or 4,000 people who have vacation homes there. None of those people have been able to enter to look after their homes. I've heard the marina, which normally has 1,000 boats, is down to 200. They've lost 80% of their boats that have been taken back up to Canada. It's got to be a ghost town over there now. All right. Uh, Well, Len, just before I let you go, I wanted to ask you as well, because you are uh, located in Blaine. Uh, What are your thoughts about tomorrow? Are you concerned? Uh, Do you have an idea on how things will play out? Uh, What will you be doing? Well, I'm definitely going to be watching the, uh, the news on the election. So I think it's like last year. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what's going to happen. It's a real kind of roll of the dice. Has anything changed in Blaine as far as preparations? Um, In Blaine, no, but I'll tell you, I was down in Portland a few days ago, and there's lots of windows being boarded up, and a lot of people are concerned about violence, uh, regardless of who wins the election. All right. We will talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Len, thanks again. As always, great to talk to you. Thanks, Jill. Have a good day. You too. Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, we are going to shift gears a little bit. We will talk more about the U.S. election and about what was happening here this past weekend a bit later on. But right now, we want to take a look at another story that has been published by David Puglesi with the Ottawa Citizen newspaper. He's a journalist there. Last time we checked in with David, it was about a very bizarre story about a fake letter about wolves that were roaming in neighborhoods. Well, this is somewhat connected to that. It's about a new organization by the set up by the Canadian military to use propaganda to perhaps influence Canadians. And David Puglesi joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about that. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so what is this all about? 
So the Canadian Forces is in the midst of uh, doing um, an enhancement of its public affairs branch. And what it wants to do is get public affairs um, involved. Uh, these are the communicators that communicate with journalists and such, um, involved into uh, more into uh, pushing out um, what's called information operations, propaganda, if you will. And so they've uh, come up with um, um, a kind of a strategy on how they want to do that. Now, one of the things that they want to do is they want to try to influence and direct the behavior of the Canadian public through various techniques. And, and what types of techniques are we talking about? Well, it could be anything from one of the things they're going to try to do is harness, uh, you know, uh, military Twitter accounts. And uh, so let's say you're a military person, you have a personal Twitter account. Well, um, you start tweeting out government messages, military-approved messages, and your friends and family think it's just you, but in reality, you're just a cutout for, uh, you know, a public affairs team. Um the other thing they want to do is uh, a data mining of Canadian social media accounts. So, and they did this, um, you may recall, they did this, I had a story uh, during the pandemic in Ontario. They, they took a look at um, Canadian social media accounts and they saw that uh, some Ontarians weren't uh, happy with Doug Ford's government. And they had collected that data and then they provided it to Doug Ford's government, which is uh, rather strange range, if uh, disconcerting. And the way you've written about this, too, saying that uh, they're spending more than a million dollars to train public affairs officers on behavior modification techniques, Mm -hmm. uh, the same sort used by the parent firm uh, Cambridge Analytica. That's going to be really concerning to a lot of people. Uh, Definitely. So, you know, as you recall, Cambridge Analytica was involved in the uh, uh, Facebook uh, scandal where they they stripped information from Facebook and provided it to Donald Trump's uh, organization. So this is kind of how do you how do you change people's behavior through information? Uh, polite way to, you know, that's the polite way to say. In other words, though, it is propaganda, and you're and you're you're trying to change attitudes using propaganda. Uh, when we've talked about this in the past, uh, there's always been uh, kind of that that difference between what the Canadian military does on foreign soil and mm-hmm. what they do at home. But it seems like that's becoming a bit more blurred. Yeah. So this is the this is at the heart of the issue. So the military will say. Um, they need these skills for overseas missions. So to, to you know, convince Afghans not to support the Taliban, this type of propaganda techniques. But the trouble is, the last four cases, whether it's the wolves that we talked about earlier on your show or um, data mining of Ontarians' social media accounts, uh, it's, it, it's everything they've been doing so far is aimed at Canadians as opposed to foreign audiences. So where is the justification there? Because on the one hand, and and I'm sure there are people that don't agree with it on foreign soil either, but Mm -hmm. on the one hand, you could make the argument in we're trying to stop somebody from becoming radicalized. Yeah, I mean, and and that's the argument for foreign foreign soil. Um, they'll, some in the military are arguing, well, the Russians are out there, the Chinese are out there using disinformation, so we have to counter that in Canada as well. Well, 
that's not the job in the military. Um, and the other thing is, I would point out, is the biggest source of information, some would argue, is down south. <laughs> it's called the President of the United States. So, <laughs> so what, How are they responding to you? Because this isn't something that they put a news release out saying, hey, everybody, look what we're doing. Uh, these are things that, that documents and, and memos that you've uncovered. Are they upset that uh, you've uncovered this? Well, the, the documents were leaked to me by individuals inside who are having some real ethical uh, issues with this, and they're worried about the legalities of this as well. Um, now, I talked to Minister Sage in the Defence Minister's office uh, last night, and they say that um, they've put a halt to this strategy, but temporarily, anyways, until, until they get a better uh, sense of uh, what's going on, which is... Uh, equally as scary. Uh, were they able to give an explanation then? It's one thing to say, okay, we've put a halt to this strategy. Why was this strategy ever put forward in the first place? Well, and that's a good point. Um, the other thing I asked about is I had an earlier story where they, um, as part of their efforts, they were going to try to counter uh, the idea that there are racists in the Canadian forces. And so as part of this campaign, um, which went off the rails. Um, they had compiled information, these dossiers, on journalists. And so I asked the, um, I asked the uh, minister's office, like, why are you doing that? And, and the response I got was, well, we didn't authorize that. Mm, but that's not the same as <laughs> answering, why are you doing this? Right. So is anybody explaining why? No, no. Um, I mean, but that is concerning as well. I mean, uh, I pick, you know, uh, there are several uh, well-known journalists. One was a CBC journalist who I know, Murray Brewster, and they had um, a little file on him. Um, and it was, you know, he, he accurately reports on the military, but uh, often he, uh, you know, goes for negative uh, articles. Well, uh, what does that, you know, why why do you need to know that? What is... Why are you spending taxpayers' dollars doing that, collecting that information? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a good question and one that I think a lot of people would want to know the answer to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, how concerned should people be then as far as, even though they said they've halted this, if they're doing this, who knows what else is being mined as far as, uh, we know we give up privacy when we're on social media and various things. Should Canadians be concerned that, that we're being watched or that our information is being compiled somewhere? So the military's response to me is that they can collect this information because it's out there. On, on social media. It's, it's open. And, and I've had these conversations with some of these senior officers, and I've said, okay, that's fine. But one, why are you doing it? Mm -hmm. And two, just because you can do it and it's legal, is this a good um, uh, use of tax dollars? Um, one of the, you know, one of the mining, data mining uh, uh, forays, they determined that uh, people in B.C. were, uh, in January, weren't, uh, weren't concerned about forest fires uh, in the summer, but they were concerned about a, an eruption of a volcano. Well, <laughs> what, <laughs> what does that give the Canadian forces? What does that give anybody? Actually? Anybody. Uh, and, and presumably the reason somebody and you know, people are leaking this to you is that they're not on board with this. Yeah, correct. I mean, there's a small number who, I get the sense, there's a small number who are, are, are very worried about this. But um, there's a lot of uh, folks inside uh, in the public affairs branch that are, um, are very keen on this capability. 
Well, we'll leave it there, but it's uh, another very interesting uh, and uh, unsettling piece, to say the least. Uh, David, thanks so much for joining us uh, to talk about it. Well, thanks for having me. Well, you've likely noticed people are wearing poppies. So once again, it is the annual poppy campaign because of COVID-19. It too looks a little different this year. But volunteers are out with the poppies and the donation boxes raising money. And it all goes to that poppy fund and the Legion to uh, support many different initiatives and to help uh, many, many people. But uh, I have a bit of a personal story to share here because on Saturday, I was one of the people doing that. Uh, I do it every year. I was standing in front of a Save on Foods. I had the poppy box. It's a little different this year, again, because of the virus. Uh, Instead of having the box on you uh, with a strap that you're carrying it, uh, this year we're putting them on tables. There's hand sanitizer and uh, people are distanced and able to go about it that way. So everything worked fine. But I did notice something as I stood in front of the grocery store and people walked by and I get it. People are busy. It was also Halloween. So I put Halloween candy out to try and entice people as well. People were busy walking back and forth. But what I did notice, and I don't know the actual ages of the people who are making donations and getting poppies, but I noticed a lot of people who I will say were at least under the age of 30, probably closer to 20s or early 20s, didn't even slow down, didn't look at the poppies, didn't make a donation, didn't want a poppy, didn't get a poppy, weren't wearing poppies. Whereas you, you went to the older age group and people were making huge donations, so generous, saying thank you and talking about how important it is to wear the poppy and how glad they were to be able to get one and wear a poppy this year. So it got me to thinking, how do we reach out to younger people and talk more about the campaign and make sure people understand why the campaign is so important? And my next guest is here to talk more about that. Tony Moore is the president of the Wally branch of the Royal Canadian Legion and joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having us on. Well, your branch seems to do a lot of this outreach and try and reach the younger uh, demographic. How difficult is it to, to get to that younger crowd interested in this? Well, it, you know, it's been a long time since World Wars One and Two and the Korean War, but we still have a lot of uh, young people out there, veterans in uh, different conflicts all around the world. We just finished with Afghanistan, if it ever finishes. But the young people are there. It's just they just um, don't think about it the same way. We're lucky. We have around six or seven hundred cadets that we uh, help service. And uh, they would love to be out there. They're very disappointed. They can't be out there today and tomorrow as it's against the rules with the COVID-19. And we understand that. But it's always great to see young people out and about wanting to help the veterans and someday they will be veterans too so we're lucky in that sense of the wally legion Uh, with cadets not being involved in the campaign like you said with the covid restrictions this year uh, cadets not taking part uh, is that a big blow to it in that young people would see young cadets and might make more of a connection yes i i feel it is a a big blow we uh, they brought in probably two-thirds of the donations Older and young people like to see young people in uniform and wish and get the idea that they should maybe join and get into a group that is really good for youth. 
Uh, there was one uh, girl that came by my poppy tray on Saturday and didn't know what the poppies were. And she was young. I would say she was probably maybe nine or 10 and, and didn't know and said, well, what is this? What are you doing? And, and I thought it was was interesting in that by that age, surely you've you've gone through Remembrance Days. Uh, they've come uh, they and, and maybe you've seen a ceremony or not. Uh, but is that is that troubling at all that there are people that that have no idea what the poppy is and why it's important? Yeah, it really is, because we get out there, we're in all the schools, we have the poppy uh, covering contest, the literary contest, and we have hundreds of kids that get involved, and this year we've got uh, not only schools, but we've got the cadets involved in it as well, and we give out, you know, some nice prizes, it's nothing skyrocket prizes, but it's really nice prizes, and some of the drawings and poems and essays a phenomenal. I, I'm on a team that actually judges them. I believe this year we have the RCMP coming out to judge some of the literary stuff. So it's quite surprising that they don't. But when you look at schools, some of the teachers, I think, are overwhelmed with the different things that are going on. So maybe the odd one gets missed out. But for this, for the whole life, we get tons of applicants in with all their different drawings. So yeah, I'm really surprised. And and I know that your branch is very involved in that as far as awarding people and making sure young people are involved and, and able to join these, these types of competitions. Do you think would other legions benefit maybe from doing more of that or do we need kind of more outreach into the community? Well, I think all the, all the legions really try and, and do it. I mean, they're not all big legions. We're only 700 strong, but, you know, there's, a, there's four legions within Surrey itself. So, yeah, I think more outreach would be there. But um, with this COVID-19 going on, you know, it's sort of tough. But I think over the years, more and more kids will come to want to recognize the poppy and what it stood for and the men and women that gave their lives for the country that we live in. You mentioned some of the, the more recent veterans, uh, the conflict in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Uh, do you think enough is done as well to, to focus on that? And then we do f- focus a lot on, on World War One and World War Two, and, the, and there's a good reason for that. But do we bring in uh, the newer conflicts and, and the younger veterans enough? I think we are starting to. I think there's been a lack of it. But the Legion is always there for all veterans, young or old, and we've really been pushing it. I'm also a member of the Order of St. George, and we really push it as well. And we're trying to get uh, the Mini Homes uh, project going in uh, in Surrey. Uh, we have some people that are willing to give us a piece of land, and the Legion promotes that. We're also, of course, you know, we have the Legion's Veteran Village that is being built right now, and we'll have uh, nearly 100 easy rentals for uh veterans and press responders to get into but we're always looking for extra money to help with that so that we can get the price of the rents down and so there's a lot going on it's all hard work on behalf of legions and and the different um, organizations that get out there the legions right up front with the veterans part of it uh, you mentioned, too, with the donations, so, so many donations coming in through the cadets and the volunteer time of the cadets. Uh, how is the Legion bracing for a potentially uh, far less in the uh, amount of donations this year? Well, I, I think we're all hoping for the best. From what I've seen of Poppy's, uh, 
poppy trees coming in. A lot of people have been very generous. It's not been your normal loonies and toonies. We've had $20 bills and 50 and $100 bills put in our tray. So I believe that people know what veterans are about, and they will come out and do the right thing. The Legion hasn't had a lot of help from the government or anywhere else. And we don't only help veterans. We help seniors, first responders. We do a heck of a lot for the community. And I like to say the Surrey community has always stood by the Legion and come out and given us a lot of money. And the Wally Legion, and especially, we've always been right up there in the first or second place where money has been given to. Last year, we did 135000 I doubt we'll get there this year, but you never know. There's always generous people in, in and around British Columbia. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned some of the, the projects as far as the mini homes and getting those rents down. What other things, uh, in case people aren't aware of where that money goes, when they donate to the Poppy Fund, what other kinds of things does it go to? Well, we, we give about $20,000 to the four different cadet corps that we look after. We've got nearly 500 children that are in those cadet corps, so we help them. We give money to the Surrey Memorial Hospital for uh, for different things. Uh, this year we gave, I think, uh, five or 10000 for COVID-19. We give to Kinsmen and the different uh, group homes money, so five or 6000 We gave away nearly 100000 in the last year to all to different outfits in the Surrey area. We tried to keep our money local and uh, help doing it that way. All right. Well, I hope, uh, like you said, uh, people are being very generous this year, which is so appreciated. And and I hope that means that it still will be uh, a good year as far as donations and being able to help so many others. Uh, Tony, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for thinking about the Legion.